Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. A great chasm lies between us and God, a chasm of our own creating. Yet the chasm is not yet fixed in place. Trusting in God's grace and mercy, let us now confess our sin that we might bridge that great chasm between us. Holy God, a faithful, loving care, in our fear, pain, and isolation, we recoil from our best selves. We retreat from your invitation to full life. We resist the love you give and withhold that love from others. We overprotect ourselves and withhold our hearts from your offer of a wider possibility, greater life, and greater generosity. Holy God, save us. Sweep away our self-condemnation power over us. Help Help us trust your perfect love. Let Let it pour into the places that only you can heal. Grant us release, freedom, and new life in you. We believe. Help our unbelief. O Holy One, hear our prayer. Let us pray. Eternal God, in the reading of the scripture, may your word be heard. In the meditations of our hearts, may your word be known. And in the faithfulness of our lives, may your word be shown. Amen. The scripture reading for today comes from the book of Psalm 91. You who live in the shelter of the Most High, who abide in the shadow of the Almighty, will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night or the arrow that flies by day or the pestilence that stalks in darkness or the destruction that wastes at noonday. Those who love me, I will deliver. I will protect those who know my name. When they call to me, I will answer them. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue them and honor them. With long life, I will satisfy them and show them my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to There's the ritual of the microphone I forgot about. Um, (laughs) Various liturgical moves that one has to learn in a new place. Before we come to the scripture lesson, I I want to thank you for the privilege of being in this pulpit where one of my dear friends, Michael Linval, was for many, many years, and where my dear friend Rick Spaulding soon will be with you. Um, These are two men whom I hold close in my heart, and it is an honor to be among the people who loved them and will learn to love one of them down the road. The interim interim, which all of us are before you get your interim next week, right? Uh, The interim interims have this uh, uh, 
we have this particular distance and it gives us an opportunity to say some things that other people can't say. And one of them is to say, you have an amazing staff of people here. Uh, you know, I know Mel and Jay best of all of them, but your residents and the other people on your staff, they have done an incredible job through this transition. They have been so attentive that those of us on the outside watch and think, you're in good hands. And, and I have felt from those of you whom I've spoken with that indeed that is the case. And so I say, God bless you for the work that you have done for so long for so many of the people of this congregation and amen. Let the people say amen. amen. Well, they wanted me to, uh, uh, always good to bring in an outsider to kick off stewardship, right? Um, they said something like, we want to we tie in the theme of the church making God's love visible with our history and future and coming back and planning for how to welcome and utilize the specialized ministry of an interim and kick off stewardship. And I think I got everything in the sermon, so, you know, get ready. Um, everything except connecting to the perfect hymn that follows it. Just, just remember that when we get to but, give thee but thine own, that it is probably the most substantial stewardship hymn that we could possibly sing, right? It says that all of this, in fact, is a gift from God. All of what we have and who we are. So, uh, I do want to say one more word about my dear friend and colleague, Rick Spaulding, who will be your interim pastor. I'm, uh, I'm going to claim credit for telling your people about him. I'm going to do that in advance, too. So, if, if it goes wrong, it's all my fault. I just, you know, it's easier that way. Um, it was easy to commend you to him and him to you. I'm very glad that you'll be working together and I'm excited about what your next period of your history will be together. Um, he is a wonderful preacher and a gifted pastor. You will have a colleague in ministry who knows what he knows, but more importantly knows what he doesn't know. And even though I'm going to claim kind of the John the Baptist role in relationship to him, uh, Rick will almost always choose the lesser role if he can. He will never pretend to be someone he isn't. His humility and art and passion will come in a beautiful combination. So I'm very happy for both you and for Rick. So now we're going to dive into a very difficult text. Um, this text comes up once every three years as the gospel reading. I want you to note just a couple things before you hear it. One, that the Greek name Lazarus comes from the Hebrew Eleazar, which means God helps. Good thing to remember that the poor man is called God helps. And then you may have heard this story as Dives and Lazarus. Dives is the Latin word for rich man. So it's a way to simply say this rich person has a name. Um, and then finally, this is a parable about poverty and wealth and hell. Perfect for stewardship. <laughs> so listen, friends, listen, listen now to these words and listen in and through them for the word of God. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores. 
He longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us is a great chasm, so that those who might want to pass from here cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then, Father, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, and they should listen to them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm going to pray in a moment, and after a text like that, one should, obviously. Um, but before that, again, I want you to think for a moment about the, the, the strange role of the visiting preacher, this interim interim. You know, we, I'll be here for a day, and then I'm gone. I, I can just say any damn fool thing I want and skip town. Uh, <laughs> And you just heard the text, right? I mean, it sounds to me like we're all going to hell. Uh, so, you know, fasten your safety belts. Put your tray tables in there locked in upright position. And, uh, but here's the thing. That also, every Sunday, any Sunday, the Spirit is present. And that Spirit may speak to us in truly life-giving, transforming ways. Even in this hour, the presence of God can move in our depths and through you know, some holy combination of the sound of a trumpet and uh, voices of all of us gathered and the hold of this sanctuary and the word and silence and gestures, that holy possibility of transformation is here. And so in that, in that hope, and that expectation and that confidence. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, thou our rock and our redeemer. Amen. O Lord, our rock. So listen again to the hard, the rock hard conclusion to this text. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
There was a story, story going around some 30 years ago, and I don't know if you know it, um, but it's, it's an old one, but, but worth retelling. A sailor named Fred Koch was out on naval maneuvers for several days at sea in, in, in heavy weather. He was serving on the lead battleship and was on the watch on the bridge as the night fell. And the visibility was already bad with patchy fog, and so the captain uh, was staying on the bridge, keeping an eye out. And just as the, the night turned to pitch black, the lookout on the wing of the bridge reported light bearing on the starboard bow. And the captain asked, is it steady or moving astern? The lookout said, steady, captain. So that, that means they're on a collision course. So the captain called to the signalman. He said, signal that ship. We are on a collision course. Advise you change course 20 degrees. The response came back, advisable you change course 20 degrees. The captain says, send, I'm a captain. Advise you change course 20 degrees. And the response was, I'm seaman second class. You had better change course 20 degrees. And by this time, the captain is just spitting furious. And he says, send, I'm a US Navy battleship. Change course 20 degrees. And the flashing message came back, I'm a lighthouse. <laughs> I'm amazed you don't know the story already. It's a good one, right? Um, so Koch says, we changed course. Um, and if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The parable suggests that even if someone says, I'm a lighthouse, we won't change course. It's terrifying. The parable tries to warn us it tries to get us to change course. It threatens us with hell. The desired change is not all that elusive or obscure. I mean, the story of Lazarus and Dives criticizes, no, actually it condemns, both the great chasm between rich and poor in this world, as well as the failure of this particular rich man to do his part. I mean, Right? Dives, the, the quintessential rich man, is he's simply rich. He's a category, a member of a class, hardly even an individual. And this parable is the narrative version of what Luke has already said in the Sermon on the Plain. Woe to you who are rich. No other qualification. You have received your consolation. It's a narrative version of the Magnificat when Mary sings, He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich empty away. And the offertory that we'll get to in a bit is a rockin' little number. And it reads this part of the parable spot on. Rich man dives, he lived so well, and when he died, he went straight to hell. So that the mere existence of rich and poor is an offense to God. God's not just concerned, but there's ire here that the millennia seem to have tried the long patience of God. And this particular rich man is, is extra culpable. He's not only in the category, but he's also culpable for his own conduct. He feasted every day, 
splendidly or sumptuously, and he seems to have missed the opportunities to redeem himself by caring for the poor. Lazarus longed to satisfy himself on the crumbs from the rich man's table, and he lay right there at the rich man's gate. So even worse, what gets overlooked is that Dives demonstrates a continuing arrogance, even in death. He says to Father Abraham, send Lazarus, right? He wants Lazarus to go cool his tongue and wants him to be sent as a messenger to his brothers, as though Lazarus were his servant. So the purpose of the threat, as I said, is not obscure. It is for us to do what Moses and all the prophets commanded, which is to care for the poor in the land. I mean, from Exodus to Amos to Micah to Isaiah, they say the same. And it is to do so both to address the systemic issue and the personal problem. That's the parable. But it speaks with these th threats, these threats that are problematic, to say the least. Um, the parable threatens us with hell. And by the way, I should parse the word us, right? Right, it threatens us. I've, I've said that. It's rightly, advisedly, I say us, but I should at least spell it out. Because we know it's just too easy for us to say, we're not rich. We know there are people richer than us, a lot richer than us. But we also know that on a global scale in the whole world that God loves in the system, we are rich. And our spiritual discipline in reading the text is always to catch ourselves when we want to say, oh, that's not about me. We, we have to seriously always consider the shoes fit and try it on. When it says Pharisees, we have to think that's us. That's part of the discipline of reading scripture, to ask always in all seriousness, how does this word apply to me? How does it apply to us? Because our hope always is that to let the text get close enough we might have the spirit and the living word hold sway in our lives. So we try not to push it off. That's our discipline with the text. And it's also clearly about that holy opportunity in worship. This is the discipline, especially with a lighthouse text, to hold it close. So now the, the metaphor of the church is a ship. It is an old one, well used, well known. Uh, the, the prow of the ship is often set the way the, the pulpit is designed. There are architectural features. These are the ribs of the ship over the top of us. But I wonder if our worship, these holy hours that we spend with the parable, might better be seen as an airline flight. We don't assign seat numbers to people in the pews, but it's almost like that, right? I mean, you all know where you're supposed to sit. That doesn't change. Um, and maybe worship with this parable is a little like U.S. Air Flight 1549. Right? That, that was the flight that Captain Chesley Sullenberger landed safely in the Hudson River. Now, Rob Collagey was a, a passenger on that plane, headed to Myrtle Beach for a golf trip, and he said that when suddenly the silent plane began to descend. All he could think was, I'll be dead in 90 seconds. 
I hope I did what I was supposed to do with my life. He wasn't saying, I hope I did everything I wanted to do. I mean, that's a different prayer. That's the bucket list prayer. No, he said, I hope I did what I was supposed to do. That's the touch of the spirit that Dives didn't have. And Rick Elias was in pew 1D. He said afterward that as that plane glided toward the Hudson, his mind was filled with thoughts of what he had done and what he had left undone. He said in that moment, he was sad about how often his priorities had gotten skewed. He'd ranked people with less importance than they deserved. He was a businessman who thought too often that business was more important than being a man. He knew he was gonna die. And, and he said he wasn't afraid, but that he was sad because he had missed so much of life. He said, I was given the gift of two miracles that day. The first was, I survived. And the second, I was given the gift to see into the future and to come back and live differently. So my sense is we're, we're up in the air in the silent air with this parable now. This parable, it, you know, it threatens us with hell and judgment. It, it wants us to fasten our safety, safety belts, read it through, and land safely but changed. And we know that threats, threats don't work very well, terribly well. The closing line of the parable sums it up. I mean, even with Jesus rising from the dead, we don't seem to have listened. I mean, if this text was meant to lead us to transform the world and remove the chasm between the rich and poor, we aren't responding very well to the threats. And we don't, we don't in general anyway, but the nature of this threat is no help either. Hell. We should care for the poor is not an erroneous conclusion of the parable, but that way of saying it simply doesn't carry the parable's original power into our hearts. So let me set this thing about hell over here. I don't know what you do with it as it's presented here, but let me offer you this. Our theology of grace would argue with the conclusion of the parable that you're just never going to obey. In fact, Andrew, what you did with the text today in proclaiming forgiveness in the overcoming of that chasm and the pouring of water, that's our theology of grace. That was spot on. That's what we know is true at the heart of this text. But the text wants to somehow move us in some way. And so if we let this text close, whatever it confronts us with this hell, we at least can say this. The Bible is dead serious about this. This command is at the emotional level of the response to your child running into the street without looking. It's terrifying. And it carries with it an urgency and a pain in God. Now, grace abounds, surely. Without grace, indeed, we are all as good as dead. But it matters 
what we do. When you read the Bible talk about judgment and hell, just remember, it matters what we do. This parable must at least say that the great chasm between the rich and the poor and the disposition of our own wealth and possessions are deadly serious matters. It matters what we do. And when the plane lands, we have a new life in front of us to do differently. With our wealth comes a holy responsibility, the dead serious responsibility to steward our wealth for the sake of God's world and particularly the poor. It is so serious a matter that when the writers pull out all the stops, they even say we are condemned. Woe to you, you will go to hell. This is the lighthouse. We're going down, brace for impact. So, pretty simple stewardship sermon from there, eh? I mean, I'm the visiting preacher. I can, uh, I can just say whatever I want and be gone tomorrow. There's a straight shot in this text to this. Give more to the church or go to hell. <laughs> right? And actually, I found that's a really good way to get the congregation to tell the preacher to go to, you know. <laughs> but no, 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 no. These are serious matters for serious people. There is a lighthouse. This matters. The engines have gone out on the plane. So I think you've felt this problem throughout the sermon, right? There's still this lingering tension out there. The parable's threats leave us feeling like we simply lack the will to do what's right. Now here's the second to last turning point about this lack of will. A few years back, I was with the, the wonderful preacher and teacher Tom Long in an informal conversation, and, and he said this. He said, our inability to obey scripture or to respond to the gospel or to follow Jesus when he calls is not a failure of will. It is a failure of religious imagination. If you can see the reign of God, you will drop your nets and follow. And we know that's true. That is indeed exactly what stewardship for the church is about. Your continuing journey, your voyage, your flight is a matter of kindling and rekindling and following a vision of the reign of God, of God's love made visible. And ain't it great that next year's 2020 vision, right? To see it with precision, to spend this next season of the church's life putting clearly out there what it is that draws us with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength into the wake of God. Imagine with me for a moment that there is a vision deep within the soul of this community. It's a vision that's always in the process of coming to the surface, finding expression in word and deed, visibly and tangibly. It's deep and true and faithful, and it neither needs the threat of hell nor the fear of judgment to drive it. It includes Alpha House and Friends Indeed and Habitat for Humanity and electric, artful, and faithful worship, attentive community service, and abundant grace for all. The vision deep within this community is alive 
and is always seeking to find new expression in word and deed. And it may be fed, it may be fanned, it may be nurtured and kindled in any one of us because the word of some one Sunday, one-shot preacher combines with the heart of a visitor who decides then to become a part of what's going on here. It's a resident with a compelling word, an inspired vision that touches the heart of someone who's been here for 40 years. It's another longtime member whose faith is re-inspired by a new interim pastor's heart. And each becomes a vital part of how the community sees itself and carries itself into the future. And it finds its expression in making God's love real. It's happened here for a long time. And it can happen again during this interim. Look, you just, you're going to receive new members soon. All kinds of extraordinary, magical things happen when it's interim. This is the holy possibility that can become full at any moment. If you can see the kingdom, you'll drop your nets and follow. That's what stewarding your resources for the sake of this congregation is ultimately about. It's to kindle a light not of warning, but a light made visible to draw others to it. Okay, so finally, truly finally. Uh, the title of the sermon came long time before the sermon was written. It's a typical thing that happens. But, but this flesh in the game, this is important. It's akin to the phrase uh, attributed to Warren Buffett, who talked about skin in the game. Skin in the game referred originally to Warren Buffett's assertion that corporate executives should invest their own money in the places where they work to ensure that those corporations are managed by people who have a stake in the company. So Buffett's intuition was that people are better motivated and committed if their own money is on the line. Oh. They'll feel the pain personally if they fail. He knew that sometimes conscience isn't enough, and people need skin in the game to be faithful. Sometimes the threat of a parable isn't enough. We can still leave unmoved and unchanged. We need skin, flesh in the game to be faithful. So you got four weeks during which time the congregation wants you to think about your pledge. I'm, just, I'm going to say two things about it. Don't make it from your disposable income. Make it about your life. Always great to do that one first in the month. I mean, because that's not disposable income. That's not skin in the game. Invest in the evolving vision of this community. And when you come up with a number, then add something to it to make you feel a little uncomfortable so that you know that you're exposed and just see what happens. There are advantages to being a one-shot preacher. You get a fresh perspective, a certain freedom, but there is also a great disadvantage. I won't be pledging to your congregation. I have one I support in Philadelphia. I don't have skin in the game here. I mean, I care about you. I know you enough to care about you and your future and how you serve. And hopefully, conscience has kept me from saying any fool thing I want. But I will come and I will go. 
and I won't feel all of the pain or joy that you feel as you work toward that vision. That vision that will have people drop their nets. But the thing is, my friend Rick is going to be with you in this. And I'm really happy for you and happy for him that you get to do that work together. You're a strong community of vision. It's a good thing. So Fred Koch and the sailors on that battleship, they changed course because they had serious skin in the game. And Rick Elias and Rod Kolajay, their lives were at stake. They had skin in the game. So we're going to land in a little while. And when God's holy bright brain out there ahead of us, that's where we're going to land. God bless you in this new opportunity for you as a congregation on the edge of this new adventure. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let the people say, Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.